In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. My name is Lamar White Jr., the publisher of the Bayi Brief. Welcome to the first episode of Combat in the Courtroom. In Combat in the Courtroom, we explore a select series of remarkable stories from the life and career of attorney Mike Fowler, which he documents in his debut memoir, From the Bronx to the Bayi, available in both hardcover and ebook at www.bronxtothebayi.com and on Amazon. He may not be a household name, but 83-year-old attorney Mike Fowler has had a front row seat in the trials of mafia bosses, politicians, and business leaders in some of the most high profile cases in the last half century. Today, we discuss the first story in Mike's book, the investigation and trial of Aaron Mintz. On the morning of January 22nd, 1984, Americans were preparing for the annual ritual known as Super Bowl Sunday. The unremarkable game, a blowout by the LA Raiders against the Washington Redskins, is only memorable for a commercial known by the title 1984, a reference to George Orwell's book of the same title. The commercial introduced the world to the Apple Macintosh. It created an immediate global media sensation. 6.32, left to play in Super Bowl 18, Raiders 28-9. January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Early that morning in New Orleans, Aaron Mintz, a member of one of the city's wealthiest and most prominent families, known for their furniture stores, had fallen asleep watching television in the living room of his uptown home. Mintz had been suffering from a bout of the shingles and had retreated downstairs late in the previous night, leaving his wife Palma, also known as Pam, alone, asleep in the master bedroom. He was jolted awake by a loud noise and decided to investigate. When he opened the door to the master bedroom, he found his wife in bed, in a pool of blood, a gun clutched in her hand. He panics. His neighbor is a physician, Dr. Meyer, and so he decides to walk next door to wake him up. Pam is hurt, he cries. She needs help. It took Dr. Meyer only an instant to reach his diagnosis. Palma Mintz was dead. The police show up. The house is declared a crime scene, and Aaron is taken into custody. He is the prime suspect in his wife's murder. Aaron's son, Bruce, is tasked with finding his dad a lawyer. I get a call from Aaron's son, Bruce. Aaron had been taken down to police headquarters, and Bruce wanted me to go meet Aaron. The investigation is assigned to New Orleans police detective John Dillman. Dillman was one of the first to arrive at the men's home, and the first to suspect there was foul play in Pam's death. I get there, I see Bruce is there in the outer office, I speak to Bruce, and then Dillman comes out and takes me into the office where he tells me the scene of Pam lying in bed in a pool with a pool of blood on the floor and a gun uh, in her hand, sort of lying in her hand, and that he then found this pillow in the other room with the bullet hole in it, 
And there's no doubt in my mind that Dillman concluded this was a case of murder, that Aaron was to be the subject. Mike is directed to the room where they're keeping Aaron. Aaron's there in, his, in this ratty bathrobe, and he sort of just, all he could say is, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. I calmed him down. Obviously, he had already spoken to Dillman. I told him he's not to talk to anyone anymore, and he tells me he needs to use the restroom. So another officer who is there, another detective, escorts Aaron into the bathroom, and I go back to talking to John Dillman. And Dillman tells me he's going to get a search warrant to search the house and obviously the room itself. I'm trying, and I want to convince Dillman not to arrest Aaron at this point. I said, look, you don't need to get a search warrant. I'll let you come to the house voluntarily. Not a problem. I'll get Aaron's consent. All I ask is that you do not arrest Aaron until you've completed your investigation and give me a heads up when you do it. And we left the police station. I know I drove back in my midlife Porsche. Mike arrives at the Mint's home. Police are everywhere. It's an active crime scene, and investigators are combing through the house, taking photographs and collecting evidence. I had never been that close to a crime scene with relation to the event itself. But I'm standing there watching this tall photographer for the police department trampling all over this shag carpeting so that he was basically destroying any use, if any, that could be made of what occurred that may have been on the floor. I didn't say anything, I'm just watching this scene. But in the midst of it, this crime scene detective gets a phone call from the coroner's office where the body had already been removed, saying they're missing the casing of the bullet that killed him, and they wanted this detective to look for it. Well, here was this bed with the sheet, cover pulled back, body gone, sort of a gruesome scene of brain particles spread out on this and full of blood. And what I watched this detective do is, in an effort to find the missing piece of the bullet, fold the sheet over in half like you would if you were trying to create a Rorschach test, and then put his hand on the top and tried to feel for something hard between the two levels of the sheet. In doing it, he destroyed any evidentiary value there was in what the sheet would have shown in terms of where the blood was, etc., They didn't find anything. Later on, they got a call that that other piece was found in the bottom of the gurney that took her body off to the ambulance, to the coroner's office. This wasn't the only thing that police messed up. I had agreed when we were at the station that I would leave the robe that Aaron was wearing when he discovered Pam's body And so I took the robe, put it into a shopping bag, left it on the entranceway table. They never picked it up. They left it so that I had it, not the police. And that became germane as well later on. Then, Detective John Dillman breaks his word and arrests Aaron without giving Mike any notice. I was in the Fifth Circuit on an listening to or engaged in an oral argument when I got the news that Aaron was arrested. 
I then go down to the police headquarters and I'm with Aaron when they do a perp walk of him for the media. Pam's death had already captivated the city, which is in the middle of hosting the 1984 World's Fair. Now, with Aaron arrested for her murder, the media was in a frenzy. Was the death of socialite Palma Mintz a suicide or a murder? That will be the key issue in the second-degree murder trial of her husband, Aaron Mintz. Mintz is accused of allegedly killing his wife, Palma, and then trying to cover up her slaying by claiming that she committed suicide. Uptown residents are not repeating publicly the gossip heard in their parlors about the violent death of socialite Pam Mintz. Few of the titillating details uttered as gossip have been confirmed as fact. Rumor will stand the test of court in what one judge calls the most sensational high society murder trial New Orleans has witnessed in 30 years. A decade before Louisiana's own Johnny Cochran assembled a dream team for O.J. Simpson, Mike Fowler was putting together an all-star roster for Aaron's defense with the goal of proving that Pam had committed suicide. First, he brought on Gary Eldridge the best criminal investigator he knew, and someone whose Rolodex included a network of nationally renowned forensic experts. Through Gary, they hired blood spatter expert Harold McDonald from upstate New York, pathologist and crime scene expert Paul Eckert from Kansas, and, critically, former FBI ballistics expert Irving Stone from Texas. Collectively, the outside experts would cost tens of thousands of dollars, a fact that Aaron would later remark on. There's one more hire Mike needs to make an expert in jury selection, also known as voir dire. He reaches out to Susie McPherson, whose work with the National Jury Project had drawn his admiration. It was essential to get as much information as we could about Pam. She had grown children. She had been a model in her early years. She believed that she had pancreatitis. She was something of a hypochondriac. She turned out to be as though quite beautiful, very insecure, very talented. She had done some painting. In fact, I still own a sort of morbid self-portrait she once did of two figures, one a rather attractive person and the other one unattractive with a sort of ghost-like figure in between the two that was the only piece of evidence introduced to the trial that the jury specifically said they did not want in the jury room. New Orleans high society is notoriously insulated. Their clubs, better known as Mardi Gras crews, cost a fortune to join, all for the privilege of dressing up in heavy, expensive costumes, pretending to be royalty while riding on a float and throwing beads at people. Truth be told, it's a blast. And within those elite circles, Everyone had a story about the Mintz family, and not all of them were about where they bought their new couch. There were things we learned about Pam. She had a Dr. Weisler, Morris Weisler, good doctor, uptown, a distant relative of Aaron's, I believe. She visited him any number of times, always complaining about what she thought was pancreatitis. She didn't think she had pancreatitis. He had often suggested to her that she see a psychiatrist, and she refused to see a psychiatrist, and basically he, I guess you could say inappropriately, acted as her psychiatrist as well as her internist. From a pharmacologist's point of view, 
who testified, of course, Professor Tulane, she was being over-medicated. Most likely it did nothing for her state of depression. Mike's team decided to interview Pam's pharmacist, whose store was well known to the people of Uptown New Orleans. There was a pharmacy that everybody uptown went to, I think it was on Britannia, and she was in there about 10 days before her death, picking up a prescription, and she was having a discussion, and she asked the pharmacist what he thought would be the best way, if you're gonna kill yourself, how to die. And the pharmacist said, you know, it's funny you ask, I had this similar conversation with somebody who did commit suicide. I told that individual, I said, well, I think if I was going to commit suicide, I'd walk off into the ocean. And the doctor who subsequently committed suicide said no, he would blow his brains out with a handgun. But Aaron was not the perfect husband, and it turns out he had skeletons in his closet as well. This was right around the time of the 84 World's Fair. Aaron had met someone named Lois Poche, much younger, and he was having an affair with her. It was an affair that was fairly well known to Pam, and it obviously created some great tension. Apparently, they maintained this aura of a normal relationship outside of the house. But Aaron was very much involved with Lois, who was in some way involved with public relations in the with respect to the World's Fair. Mike titles his chapter about the Mintz case, The Pillow, The Damned Pillow, because from almost the beginning, he had understood that the prosecution's case relied on one troubling detail. Before anyone else saw Pam's body, Aaron, by his own admission, moved a small foam pillow from their bed to a daybed in an adjoining room. That pillow, it turns out, had a bullet hole. Aaron maintains he acted in shock. Detective Dillman, however, believed otherwise. Dillman was an interesting character. Very cocky, very uh, full of himself, and lazy, in my opinion. I don't think there ever was a true forensic examination in this case. Dillman concluded from finding the pillow that that pillow was used to silence the sound of the gunshot, that Aaron, in effect, he'll use that pillow to place it next to her head, theoretically shot from the external portion of the pillow into Pam's head. And that's their theory. This is where the analysis of former FBI ballistics expert Irving Stone becomes critical. The pillow is a foam rubber pillow, and the test firings by Stone established that a projectile would have driven pieces of the foam rubber out of her head. The shot was a through and through shot, so the bullet went through her head, came out the other side, and I think ended up in the wall, opposite wall, like police found it. There was no foam rubber found in in any way, in any place. There was no foam rubber around her head, in her brain, which there would have been shreds, you know, like shrapnel pieces of it in her brain, or on the exit wound. 
and equally significant, there was no foam rubber, which there should have been, in that pool of blood, no specks of foam rubber in that pool of blood, which had emanated from her head. By the time the trial began, Mike and his team had uncovered a series of facts that seemed to directly refute the state's case. But the public was already convinced of Aaron's guilt, largely due to the media, who had decided that the case of Aaron Mintz and the murder of his wife Palma was far more interesting than the World's Fair. Mike, though, was ready for combat. Good evening. What promises to be one of the most closely watched trials in recent New Orleans history is getting underway. It involves Aaron Mintz, who was charged with the murder of his wife. Candidates for the jury were being put through tedious interviews in a grueling two-step screening process to weed out the influence of pretrial publicity. One by one, each prospective juror easily fielded simple questions from prosecutors Jack Peebles and Bruce Whitaker, only to stumble through their answers to more detailed questions from defense lawyer Michael Fowler. Fowler, showing a flair for drama, tested the temper of Judge Frank Shea when he would not shorten his questions. Jury selection, meantime, for the second-degree murder trial of prominent businessman Aaron Mintz has dragged into the second day, and the final panel has still not been picked. After two days of questioning, still no jury seated in the second-degree murder trial of New Orleans furniture executive Aaron Mintz. Good evening. Lynn Ganser is off tonight. In the news, the Aaron Mintz murder trial recessed this evening after opening arguments by the prosecution and defense. Here's the news. The second-degree murder trial of New Orleans furniture store owner Aaron Mintz continues into the weekend tomorrow with the first witnesses taking the stand. The first witness takes the stand Saturday morning on the fourth day of the trial. Jurors have the rest of the weekend off in the second-degree murder trial of furniture executive Aaron Mintz. Today, his neighbor, a pathologist, testified the death of Mintz's wife, Palma, was not a suicide, as Mintz claims. Well, we have heard what the prosecution had to say today, but what about the defense, Ralph Capitelli? They scored some points, certainly. They obviously did. Mike Fowler scored some major points in terms of his theory of defense today. Primarily, when Dr. Meyer was on the stand, he hammered him at his uh, lack of knowledge as a forensic pathologist, as well as the fact that Dr. Meyer originally classified this as a suicide and reported this matter as a suicide and not a homicide. And then changed it about a day later. And then changed it later on. Two experts have testified there is evidence that prominent businessman Aaron Mintz killed his wife then cleaned up the scene to make it look like suicide. Tonight, our special coverage continues with Taylor Henry reporting on day six of the Mintz murder trial. Well, Wayne's Parish coroner, Dr. Frank Minyard, is taking center stage in the Aaron Mintz murder trial. He's one of the final witnesses for the prosecution as the state prepares to rest its side of the case. Well, with us again right now is uh, our trial analyst, attorney Ralph Capitelli. Ralph, the trial came to an abrupt ending this afternoon as uh, people Peoples and Fowler got into it over the cross-examining of Minyard. What do you make of this? Bill, Jack Peoples obviously became upset in the manner of cross-examination that was going on. Mike Fowler, since the opening bell in this trial, has been on the attack and has pounded witnesses at times with question after question, showing a tremendous knowledge of the facts and of the sciences, and at times he's shown his preparation to be really awesome. He was totally prepared for all the witnesses. More incriminating testimony awaited Aaron Mintz when he arrives for the beginning of his second week at trial. Good afternoon, I'm Ron Hunter. Here's what's happening live at 5. The state today rested its case in the second-degree murder trial of Aaron Mintz.
defense is expected to call its first witness tomorrow in the murder trial of prominent furniture store executive Aaron Mintz. Tonight, our special coverage continues. Good evening, Lynn Gansra is off this week at the top of the news. Murder defendant Aaron Mintz spent most of the day today on the witness stand admitting that he had an affair with a New Orleans public relations executive, but heatedly and repeatedly denying that he had anything to do with his wife Palma's death. Good evening, I'm Steve Ozinovich, and this is the early edition of New Scene 8. The defense today rested its case in the second-degree murder trial of New Orleans furniture executive Aaron Menz. Closing arguments begin at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Good evening, everyone. Headlining our news tonight, after some closing arguments in the morning, the jury starts deliberating whether Aaron Menz killed his wife, Palma. That's just a portion of a three-hour tape one of Mike's colleagues recorded for the sake of posterity. And thankfully, Mike kept his closing remarks which he wrote by hand. Here he is in his own words. Ladies and gentlemen, eight days ago, Jack Peoples stood before you and pledged to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that on January 22nd, Aaron Mintz shot his wife. It has taken 10 days and a little bit out of each one of our lives, and you're never going to forget it, to put the lie to that allegation. The tragic nightmare of this case, I suggest to you, must end today by your verdict. I grieve not only for the death of Palmer Mintz, I grieve for the system that has been exposed during the course of this trial. A system that we had a right to expect would work differently than it worked in this case. I want you to look at the evidence and simply apply your common sense to it. I'm going to try to describe it to you as simply as I know how. Members of the jury, if what I say to you is not accurate, reject what I say. But if it's accurate, if what I am saying has a ring of truth to it, if it is what you re recollect from the evidence, if it is what you can fairly and reasonably deduce from the facts, then take it with you into that jury room. That is all I ask of you. That is all you ever swore to do. If in fact the facts are as reasonable with suicide as homicide, you are sworn to do what? To acquit. I submit to you by the time we are done, you will see that we have not only destroyed the state's thesis, but in doing so, we have taken upon ourselves a burden we should never have had to bear. We have and we are the only ones who have engaged in an investigation into her death. We have brought before you every fact we could find concerning the, that human being, Palmer Mintz. Think about that case. What is it built upon? It is built on the pillow. If the bullet that killed Pam Mintz did not go through this pillow, then there is no case against Aaron. None. Think about it. Their whole thesis, and only thesis, is that Aaron stood behind the pillow, shot through it, and the bullet entered her temple. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, the whole question then becomes, what, if anything, is the connection between this pillow and the bullet that entered Pam Mintz? Everybody, everyone in this case, agrees there's not a shred of evidence, not a single shred, 
to connect the bullet, the actual bullet that went through Pam's head, with the hole that exists in this pillow. In other words, there's no scientific evidence that says the bullet that killed Pam first went through that pillow. Why did Pam have that pillow on that bed? None of us will ever know. If you are looking to solve that mystery, you will never be able to. You may come up with some thoughts about it, but you'll never solve that mystery. I promise you that. We know now one thing. The bullet that killed her did not go through it. So, what you can only do is deduce from the facts how the pillow arrived there. We put on everybody we could to flush out the character of Pam Mintz. Her friends, her relatives, her husband, her son, her daughter, the housekeeper, the maids, people who saw her at parties, people who knew her casually, and the experts who tried to glean something about her, her doctor and her druggist, and each of them developed a picture of this human being. She was apparently a complex human being, two human beings perhaps, on the surface, quite sophisticated, cold, aloof, somewhat reserved. Inside, sensitive, talented, a perfectionist, according to Dr. Ritter. She always felt herself to be incomplete, unworthy. She was basically unaffectionate and quite vain, but vain in a way that a beautiful woman, as her best friend said, perhaps had a right to be. According to her best friend, Beryl Marsh is, and no one loved Pam more than she did. She had never seen another human being who had a poorer self-image than Pam. She never understood why. She thought Pam was absolutely perfect. She truly idolized Pam. But no one, according to Beryl, had a poorer self-image. Pam was, to say the least, deeply depressed, but did not reveal that as such. The depths of a depression were obviously not revealed to anyone close to her and she was in need of psychiatric attention, but refused it. Dr. Weisler kept her on a regime of drugs, antidepressants, anti-anxiety pills, which, as you heard, Dr. George, the pharmaceutical expert, say, may have been self-defeating. The woman was clearly over-medicated. That's a polite way of saying it. Dr. George was telling you just that. There was too much going on, and what effect that had on her psyche, I don't know. But that's what the facts were. And she kept the depression, the psychiatric sessions, and the antidepressant medication from her family, from her children, from her best friend. But it is a fact in this case, and nothing the state says can change that. Pam was in the drugstore at the corner of Britannia and Marengo, she was filling a prescription. Pan was very agitated, walking up and down, and she got into a discussion with Mr. Schubert, the pharmacist. She was discussing her pain and then asked him what he thought was the easiest way to end your own life. And he told her that that was a question that had once been put to him before by Dr. Rabin, who was once the coroner in this city. 
Dr. Rabin put the same question to Mr. Schubert, who told him he thought drowning was the easiest and told him why. Dr. Rabin said, no, that's not true. You take a three fifty seven Magnum and you put it to your temple and that ends it. There's no pain. That's the end. Three days later, Dr. Rabin did just that, according to Mr. Schubert. Schubert told that story to Pam Mintz on January 9th, the day she filled the last prescription. Ladies and gentlemen, you will see it on the record of that drugstore. Surely it is of some significance that a woman like Pam Mintz would engage in a discussion as to what is the easiest way to die. That is not normal conversation, is it? It's not something you or I would normally ask anyone. I suggest to you, at that point in time, Pam Mintz was planning her death. She not only began planning her death, but the weapon that she would use to do it. I say planning because, as you heard already, that was in her nature. She was someone who thought things through, planned them, and then did them. She was, as you know, proficient with handguns. You don't need to hear any more about it from me. She fired weapons at the range, owned a thirty-eight Special, had a special grip put on it, and she owned the Mauser in issue in this case. On the following Thursday or Friday, we know from Albedine that instead of being morose and melancholy and depressed, she seemed to have some spark to her. She seemed on that day to have some purpose, and it was on that day that Albedine saw her leave the house with the bag and her dry cleaning, which she was taking to the deluxe cleaners. She left with something that looked like a pillow, and when she returned, Albedine actually saw the pillow in what was like a Schwegman's bag. Since no cartridge, bullet, or casing was found in the house or in her room, I submit to you it was shot through somewhere other than in the house. Why? I do not pretend to know, but I submit to you it was shot through, leaving but five shells at that point in the weapon. On the following day, the 21st, Mrs. Mintz was up unusually early, as you heard Gladys tell you. Gladys had worked for her for over 30 years. Gladys went upstairs just to check if the bed was tight, the way she knew Mrs. Mintz always wanted it. She put her hand between the pillow and the spread to tighten it, and as she did so, on Mrs. Mintz's side of the bed in the master bedroom, she struck something hard, and so she took off the spread. And what did she see, ladies and gentlemen, under the pillow? The Mauser. Saturday night, after attending a party, Pam and Aaron walked into the house, as Aaron told you. He got undressed downstairs, left Pam by her dressing table, and went upstairs to bed. It was the last time he saw her alive. Pam, by her own volition, by her own choice, laid down her own bed. Not in the front room, where she had been sleeping, 
every night for six months or more. She had decided to take her own life in her own bed, the very bed that she had shared with Aaron for those so many years. She didn't need the gloves and she didn't put them on. Nobody could have made her not put them on. She didn't need the mask because she was not going to see the sunlight again. She didn't take off her makeup. She left it on. I guess that one aspect of her, her concern about her own appearance, even in death, was important. And she left her watch on, which was unusual as well. I submit to you that she lay there while Aaron slept next to her, simply waiting for Aaron to awaken, which he did about 4.30. She heard him get up. She would have had to. She never went to sleep. She waited simply until he went downstairs, and having the gun already placed under the pillow, all she had to do was to get the other pillow. For whatever reason, I know not why. She took that pillow. Maybe she was going to use it herself. Maybe not. I didn't know. But we do know this. She placed it on the bed next to her and then put that gun against her temple with five shells remaining in it and finally ended her pain. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron has never had a chance to grieve the death of Pam. It's time we let him. It's time we let him walk away from the glare of the publicity and finish out his life in peace. The state has not carried its burden of proof under any conceivable view of the evidence. It is equally as clear that something has gone radically awry with the system that would go and do what it did in this case. I should say I'm really only concerned with Aaron. But there really is more than just Aaron at stake here. Your verdict can deal with both. It is a tragedy for all of us to see what has taken place here. Make Mr. Peoples, when he stands up again, Answer the questions that we have discussed here today. Make him tell you why the state did not do what they should have done. Make him explain why the state did not do so. Good evening, everyone. Topping our news tonight, was it murder or suicide? A jury is trying to answer that question at this hour in the second-degree murder trial of New Orleans businessman Aaron Mintz. This jury has been deliberating since 3.40, about one hour and 20 minutes. Still no verdict yet. There is tension in Judge Frank Shea's court as Mintz, his attorney, family, friends, prosecutors, and the curious await the jury's findings. Many observers in this trial agree that it really did come down to the wire, and the closing arguments were the deciding factor. Ralph, the age-old question. The longer the jury stays out, it means what? I've been at this too long, Bill. The longer the jury stays out, the longer the jury stays out. I don't know what it means. The judge asked the jury to begin deliberations, and at 5.30, he called a recess for dinner. Mike and his team, along with Aaron, leave the courthouse. We went to a restaurant down the street. I hadn't really eaten that whole week, but I overate that evening, and most likely had more to drink than I should have. And we drove back after dinner. As Aaron and I were walking up the steps 
a female reporter came bursting through this courthouse doors saying, they have a verdict, they have a verdict. Well, if it was today, I would have pulled out a cell phone and called the people who were still in the car parking it. Well, but there were no cell phones in those days. That was 1984. So I had to run the whole length of the courthouse on a full stomach and with a little too much to drink in me, shouted down to the people in the car, come on, they have a verdict, we need to get to the courtroom, get moving. And I ran full, full steam back to the courtroom, sort of out of breath as the jury you know, came into the courtroom. Sal and Gory and I stood on either side of Aaron as the jury took their seats. And then the verdict was read, acquitting Aaron of the count of having murdered his wife. The courtroom went crazy. I remember Aaron's brother jumping up in joy. I suddenly felt this sort of strange sense coming from the bottom of my sole of my feet, working its way up my whole body. It was like I was going to get sick. I knew that or pass out. Well, it was Sunday and there were no restrooms, public restrooms. The only one around was the one in the judge's chamber. So Sal walked me to the judge's chamber, and as I went through that door, I collapsed into a chair sitting right inside the door, threw up all over myself. I don't know how long I was out. And I remember when I woke up, the judge was standing in front of me with a glass of beer in his hand, saying, I've seen you look better. He's leaving a couple of things out. After he collapsed, people began to panic. Everyone, including the media, believed Mike had had a heart attack. So, once he finally recovered, he held an impromptu press conference on the courthouse steps. The most sensational case in New Orleans since the early 1950s thus concluded with Mike Fowler, victorious from combat, speaking in front of reporters and cameramen from every single news organization in the city. It was the last moment of the case, and the lasting image was of Mike standing on the steps of the Orleans Parish Criminal Court at the corner of Broad and Tulane, his bare chest draped only by his blue blazer. The case had already made him a local celebrity. This made him a legend. Good evening. While the dramatic events surrounding the Aaron Mintz murder trial were still the topic of discussion around town today, Mintz's defense attorney seems to be as much a subject of interest as the defendant himself. The telephone was buzzing off the hook today at the office of attorney Mike Fowler. Before noon, I've had at least 50 calls, at least. It's been incredible. It was about, a had to be a week or two after. I was going to Molly's, a bar in the French Quarter. It was a bar that a lot of the press people were used to hang out at. And I was crossing the street at Decatur, and all of a sudden, as I was crossing the street with my wife, a car came screaming around the corner, rolled down its window, and yelled, you son of a bitch, he was guilty. So I went to Molly's and had a drink. After reading the book From the Bronx to the Bayou and meeting Mike personally, I decided that a book review wouldn't do his story justice. He needed a show. Do yourself a favor. If you live in New Orleans, head over to Blue Cypress Bookstore, or Octavia Books, and buy a copy of Mike's book. Otherwise, you can purchase a copy on Mike's website, www.bronxtothebayou.com, or on Amazon, where it is also available as an ebook.
On future episodes of Combat in the Courtroom, we'll hear about Mike's time working for Bobby Kennedy, his encounters with Carlos Marcello, his role in the acquittal of Governor Edwin Edwards, and the five citations he's received for contempt of court, only one of which was upheld. Special thanks to Ben Collinsworth, our producer, and to Hannibal the Beat Animal for composing our theme song. And finally, thanks to New Orleans artist Monty Stickman for our logo. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief. That's www.bayoubrief.com, Louisiana's only statewide nonprofit news and culture publication. Thanks for listening.